So, we are finishing up the series, uh, The Birth of Christ, this morning, and we're going to look at Luke chapter 3, so I, go ahead, I just wanted to invite you to go ahead and open up your Bibles and be ready for that. But Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the well-known German theologian during the Nazi regime in World War II, once wrote about a concept he called cheap grace. You see, cheap grace is this idea that becoming a follower of Jesus and receiving his grace has no costly requirement upon people's lives. So you receive the forgiveness of Jesus, but can go about living your life as normal, just remembering to ask for forgiveness from time to time. There's no accountability, no call to closely follow Jesus and grow in him. So here's what he had to say in his landmark book, The Cost of Discipleship. Grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Since the cost was infinite, the possibilities of using and spending it are infinite. What would grace be if it were not cheap? You see, what Bonhoeffer means here is that sometimes grace is understood incorrectly where people believe that because it is infinite, then we can continue to sin all we want and that there is no cost to our daily lives. He calls this cheap grace because it cheapens the reality of grace. And I think we easily do this too. We are often tempted to believe that believing in Jesus does not place a costly call on us. You see, what Bonhoeffer discussed is that we need to understand how costly grace is. You see, grace, while freely given and offered, does, not, does cost us our entire lives. It's not just a get-out-of-jail-free card or fire insurance, but a total call to give everything over to Jesus. A call that requires us to lay down our old lives and then take up a new life in Christ that he has given us. But we are not alone in doing this. You see, the call of God is total allegiance to his son, but he will enable us to live boldly and obediently. So this morning we're going to look at three calls that God places on us as his people. So again, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 3. And so by way of quick reminder, Luke wrote like a really good investigative reporter to prove to us that Jesus truly is the Son of God and that he died and rose again as was prophesied to happen from the Old Testament. And he does this so that his readers would come to believe in Jesus for themselves and for those of you who don't know Jesus that you would do the same by reading his book. And so today we're going to see this idea from the perspective of John the Baptist and his ministry. So let's go ahead and read uh, verse 1 to start from chapter 3. In the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod, tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip, tetrarch of Iturea and Trachonitis, and Lysanias, tetrarch of Abilene. You see, the people mentioned here are much more than time markers to authenticate Luke's account. You know, personally, I would love to go through each and every one of these people for you, but I think we'd be here until lunch if I did that. And to be honest, I'm always very hungry and I love food and nobody wants that. So, but what's interesting here is that many of these characters are going to show up again throughout Luke's narrative. And they too are going to be affected by the ministries of John and Jesus. 
Verse 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. So Luke is creating an interesting contrast here because it's the high priests of Annas and Caiaphas who you would most expect to get a word from God since the high priest would go into the, high, the holy place once a year in the temple. But instead, it's John, the son of Zechariah, who we learned about in chapter one. He's the one that receives the word from God. And because it's not the high priests, we know that John is going to question the religious status quo and cause some friction between him and the religious leaders. And as well, Luke is showing how John fulfilled prophecies stated about him earlier from Luke chapter 1. You see, John received a calling that is very similar to Old Testament prophets when it says the word of God came to John. And as we're going to see later, though, John experienced the same level of open hostility and even death as a prophet that others in Israel's history did as well. Verse 3, he went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. You see, the fact that John is in the wilderness and around the Jordan evokes imagery from the Exodus story. It's indicative of Israel's deliverance and then formation as a nation. So John is being portrayed here as a prophet of renewal for Israel, to turn to God because his deliverance is coming. So John here is like Moses in this instance, and Jesus is the Lord who is going to set his people free. And the leaders all mentioned here in verses 1 through 2 are the evil powers which the people will be freed from. So we ask the question, what was John's baptism for? You see, in Jewish thought, water cleansed a person. So that's one thing. It was about cleansing. But another thing was that John was calling people to align themselves fully with God's, peop- God, with God's kingdom and especially to prepare themselves for the coming of the Messiah. They were turning away from their old life toward a new life in allegiance to God, which is actually what we would call repentance. You see, repentance is not just a bad feeling about the things that you did wrong and you knew they were wrong, or not doing the good things you knew you should do and feeling bad about that, because sin is much more pervasive than that. Sin is a condition of the heart that causes us to act simply, and we can't fix that. Repentance, then, is an attitude that has to have a match in behavior, to turn away from sin and toward a new life where your primary allegiance is to God and his will for your life, recognizing you can't fix your sin condition but need a change of heart that can only be done by God. That's what John was calling the people to do, to prepare them for the Messiah, to turn away from their old life and into a new life devoted solely to God's purpose. And so this baptism was a sign, truly, that the repentance was real for the person. But ultimately, as it says in the passage, this baptism was for the forgiveness of sins. You see, sin excluded a person from the community of Israel, but also to God. And forgiveness marks a restoration back to the community. But you see, the same thing happens in Christ when we repent of our sins. He washes us, washes us clean of our sin, and then we are forgiven completely by God. And the righteousness of Christ is placed on us. And so God then views us as spotless, perfect, and blameless. Verse 4. 
As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of, of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. Luke is specifically referencing Isaiah chapter 40, verses 3 through 5 here. Preparing the way here is about the people repenting of their sin, turning back to God to be ready for the Lord to come in the context of Isaiah 40. In this story, now that many people are getting baptized and repenting of their sins, this should prepare them for the coming of the Lord, the Messiah. Verse 5. Every valley shall be filled in, every mountain and hill made low. The crooked roads shall become straight, the rough ways smooth, and all people will see God's salvation. See, in reference to John the Baptist, only Luke includes these particular verses from, uh, from Isaiah 40, four, verses 4 through 5. The imagery of the valleys being filled and the mountains made low is in reference to making a road to be able to approach the king. John is the one literally paving a new road to prepare for the coming of the Lord, who we're going to find out is Jesus. And in the context of Isaiah, it was to prepare for the coming of Yahweh himself, the creator and father God. And that's a shocking thing that Luke would then equate Jesus with Yahweh. That would be offensive to those Jews in that day. So again, what is the purpose of this making a smooth road that John is doing here? It's so that all people will see God's salvation, so that all people would have the opportunity to come and hear about this Messiah who has come to save them. And so true salvation begins with the first call, and that is to give your allegiance to Jesus and his kingdom alone. You see, Luke makes it clear through the ministry of John that true repentance is fully aligning ourselves with God's purposes into his kingdom. It's renouncing your old life, the way you see the world, the way you make decisions, everything. And instead turning towards Jesus and saying, you are my king. I am completely yours. Instead, Christianity has been reduced to a mere transactional faith system. That when we believe in Jesus, our sins are forgiven and we get to go to heaven when we die, which is true, but it's not just that. When, when we truly believe in Jesus, we recognize that our lives are no longer our own, but they are his. We now know that anything, that any, that anything else in this world can get in between us and, and Jesus as our king. He is our king and nothing else should be. But too easily we allow for competing affections to get in the way and take our hearts and our allegiance away from Jesus and his kingdom. So ask yourself this question this morning. Who or what is the king of your life? What is the competing kingdom you have given your allegiance to over Jesus' kingdom? Is it the kingdom of your career, your spouse, your children, yourself maybe, your political party, or a particular unrealized dream of yours, a sports team or a hobby? Recognize this morning that to truly believe in Jesus is to fully give your allegiance to him as your savior and as your king. Let's continue verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath. See, John is warning here against an idea that Isaiah prophesied about frequently in his ministry hundreds of years earlier, which is to participate in religious practices hypocritically without their behavior matching what they say they believe. You see, in our day, it's like believing Jesus will forgive any of your sins so you can live however you want 
kind of like the cheap grace concept we talked about earlier that Bonhoeffer wrote about. Your behavior must match your beliefs when it comes to following Christ. Otherwise, you're showing that you actually don't believe in Jesus. And so for John, this baptism meant a total rejection of your old life and willingness to take up a new life in God. Repentance must result in a change in your life, not just a good feeling of having your sins forgiven. And so John calls these people a brood of vipers. And by doing that, he's saying that they were the offspring of poisonous snakes rather than of Abraham, who they claim was their physical descent father. It's quite an intense and cutting claim, especially since snakes were associated with the devil and the snake in the Garden of Eden. And so in in that culture, to be born of something is to share in its character by nature. So he's saying you share in the character and nature of the enemy of Satan. Quite an offensive thing to say to a lot of people. But as well, the, the crowd was full of people who identified themselves as part of the family of God because of their physical descent, but were far away because of their behavior and their sin. And I think it is unfortunately the same for many today who say they are Christians, but do not have their lifestyle match up to their belief. Or they believe in a form of Christianity that does not match with the Bible, and they've made it into their own image. And so the coming wrath refers to the final judgment of God or the day of the Lord in terms of the Old Testament. So this is about the divine hostility toward evil by God. And so here's the fact. We all must face that the wrath of God is absolutely coming. And so for the Israelites, just because they were by their family line from the people of Israel, that fact alone did not save them. And the same goes for those who have been born in Christian homes or have been in church a long time or attend church occasionally. You are not saved from the wrath of God simply by association. But whether you have given your life to Jesus and recognize your sin and that he paid the price for it on the cross. Verse 8. Produce fruit in keeping with repentance and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. So in telling them to produce fruit in keeping with repentance, he's completely flipping the script of their view. Again, they believed that being part of the covenant community of God was simply a right by birth. But John tells them here that it is through a response to God's gracious initiative to choose them as his people. And so this understanding should result in a life that is consistent with obedience to God's commands. So if they truly believed in God, their life should produce fruit, giving evidence to that fact. So ask yourself this morning, what is the fruit being produced in your life concerning your belief in Jesus? Are you seeing good fruit come out of your life as Jesus changes you? Or do you feel like you're the same you've always been with no noticeable changes since you put your faith in Jesus? If that's the case, then that should be deeply concerning. But John tells them to not say that they have Abraham as their father because what he he means is that is not the standard of entrance into the covenant community. Again, it's a response to God's gracious initiative. So John then says that they're easily replaceable instead. If they're not going to believe in faith, that they're replaceable with stones. 
And this is about how God can raise life out of something that is absolutely lifeless. It's not about a literal transforming of a rock into a living, breathing human being. That's not what he means. But about taking a person who is far from God, like a Gentile or tax collector or soldier, as we're going to see in a minute, but re- and reforming them to bring them near to him. So what he is essentially saying here is that to be a child of Abraham is not about physical descent, but about the model of faith that Abraham placed in God, and it was credited to him as righteousness, as the Apostle Paul reminds us in his writings. In other words, those who take up the same model of faith in God that Abraham did are a part of the family of God, whether they are a Jew or a Gentile. Verse 9. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. So this is a really stern warning by John to say, God is ready to cut those out of the community who are not bearing fruit in repentance. They are going to undergo the promised judgment by fire. And with the fire imagery, it means a complete and total destruction. You see, the same warning goes for those who claim to be Christians. You cannot escape the coming judgment simply by association with Christians or a church or having grown up in a Christian home or just going to church for a long time or occasionally, but only through trusting in the work of Christ on the cross completely to cover your debt of sin and to make you a new person. That is the only way you can avoid this coming judgment. And so the way John phrases this should give the audience and us the concept of urgency and the need to respond immediately to what he is saying. Verse 10, what should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. The crowd appropriately responds with asking, what should we do? You see, it might seem that John is supporting some sort of works-based way of being saved that you can earn it by your own effort, but that is not the case. First, we must understand the basic nature of the question being asked of John. Essentially, the crowd is asking, how do we give evidence of genuine repentance? So John's answers to the crowd reveal heart attitudes that come from a radically changed heart. The first one has to do with generosity. So think of this. Do you have the resources to be generous to those who are in need? Then use them with a heart of generosity, looking for nothing in return and from kindness and love. One of my favorite things about working at this church for the last five years is how generous you all are. This is an incredibly generous church. But we should still always be asking ourselves the question, if we are giving for the right reason, is it to be shown as a great giver, as a cheerful giver, or is it out from a heart of generosity, not out of obligation? Because God wants cheerful givers. He wants it from a generous heart because of what God has done for us. Verse 12, even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. So tax collectors come to him and ask what they should do. And I got to tell you, tax collectors were far worse than IRS audit agents. You see, these people were Jews who won a contracted bid and worked for the Roman Empire. 
It's like if we were to be conquered by a rival nation tomorrow, and then a few of you signed up to collect taxes for that nation, and then you collected more than you were supposed to and took off off the top for yourself so you could have a little bit for yourself to make a little bit of a profit. This is what tax collectors did. So not only were they cheaters and liars, but they were traitors to their own people. So it's no wonder that they were hated so much. Wouldn't you hate someone who did the same thing? And so this is why John tells them to collect only what is required because what he's talking about here is radical honesty. No shortcuts or fudging numbers, but honest dealings. You see, if a cashier gives you even a cent extra, you feel the need in your heart to give it back because it's the right thing to do. Or you want every one of your financial reports to reconcile correctly or you feel terrible or you do your taxes to make sure that every cent that is by law owed to the government goes there because that is what Jesus commands even if you really don't like it again this must come from a heart that is radically changed not out of obligation verse 14 then some soldiers asked him and what should we do he replied don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely be content with your pay So some soldiers come to John, ask the same question, and it's kind of apparent here that they're maybe in kind of league with the tax collectors, kind of getting some stuff off the top of that business. But what John is pointing to here is contentment. So content here is the Greek word archeomai, which means to be sufficient enough, and I love this word, satisfied. So you, you see, we are taught in our culture through advertisements that we need the next and greatest big thing to be happy. We are conditioned to be discontent. We are conditioned to not be satisfied with what we have or what we have been given by God. Instead, it's a constant pursuit and search for the latest and greatest thing. Only to find that when we acquire that thing, the high of getting it only lasts for a short time. So then we're on to the search, on a search for the next thing. So John is showing here that through these examples that to participate in his baptism, one must embrace behaviors rooted in a radical realignment with God's purposes. These behaviors and attitudes are manifestations of the work of God in your life to save you. In other words, they are natural outward expressions of the inward reality of the changed life God has brought in you. They are not just the applications of what to do next to have God be pleased with you or to make you feel good about yourself, but because God was pleased to reveal his son and his work to you, then you do these things. And so this is our second call, that we live out obedience from a radically changed heart. I think an unnecessary burden is often placed upon Christians with how living for Christ in obedience has been preached in the past. You see, it is often anchored in gritting our teeth, finding clever ways to create behavioral habits that mimic a changed heart. When instead, we actually live out our obedience to God from a radically changed heart. That is what John is saying through this section of the passage, to show true repentance that you have renounced your old ways and made Jesus your king. It has to come from a changed heart. Otherwise, you're placing the same kind of burden you had on yourself before you came to know Christ, that you are inherently believing that it is still up to you to be what God wants you to be, but it's not. It's Christ's 
forming himself in you with his Holy Spirit doing the work. So if you feel stuck and feel like you cannot live in this kind of obedience to Jesus, there are two things, two simple things to do. First, ask Jesus to change your heart so that you will obey from that rather than obligation. But second, it's to continue to work hard at obeying until your heart changes. You see, it's why the Apostle Peter said to make every effort to add to your faith Christ-like qualities. And I know this might sound contradictory to what I just said, about, but obedience is still required even if your heart is not in it. But that's why we must ask him to change us so that obedience flows from our changed heart. And in many ways, this is a great act of faith to obey even when our hearts aren't there yet, waiting for Jesus to change it. Let's continue verse 15. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. So the way John was speaking and acting made people start to believe that and think that maybe he was the Messiah. Notice that this is also within their minds. And so we're going to see this in the next verse. John is very aware of what they're thinking. The Jews have been told for thousands of years to this point that a Messiah was going to come. And so, of course, anyone acting the way John did would arouse this suspicion, especially since he was doing his ministry in the wilderness and evoking Exodus imagery. Verse 16, John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So John's mission was totally different from the Messiah, and he makes two critical distinctions between himself and the Messiah. First, he baptized with water, but the Messiah is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit and fire. The Greek word for baptism, baptizo, excuse me, means to dip, sink, meaning that the Messiah came to completely immerse people in the Holy Spirit. But fire was purifying. It removed impurities. And so the Messiah would completely remove and remove sin and wash people away from it and immerse them in his Holy Spirit. And John's baptism by water was in anticipation of that work by the Holy Spirit and fire. The second distinction is that the Messiah was far superior and more powerful than him. You see, he didn't even, John didn't even think he was worthy to untie Jesus' sandals. You see, this is a duty that only slaves would perform. So John is actually saying here that he's not even worthy of doing a slave duty for this Messiah. That's how lowly he thought of himself in comparison to the greatness of the Messiah. Verse 17. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn. But he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. You see, winnowing was the process of tossing grain into the air to separate the wheat grain from the chaff. A a winnowing fork was the tool that was used for this process. You see, the chaff was the leftovers and unneeded parts of the wheat stock. This imagery is used frequently for judgment in in the Bible, and it's the same case here. The chaff are those who have not entered into covenant relationship with God and are thus subject to the coming judgment and to be burned in unquenchable fire because they would burn that stuff away and get rid of it because they didn't need it. 
But the wheat, the grain, those who have entered into a relationship with God will enter the barn, enter that covenant community. And this is all going to be a work of the Messiah. And, some, and sometimes people get very uncomfortable with this judgment kind of talk. But for the good news of the gospel to be truly good news, there has to be bad news. And that bad news is we are accountable for the evil that we have done, and we are liable to judgment. But the Messiah will enable us to escape that judgment through belief in him and what he has done on the cross. And so some of these statements here are likely a summary of what John said, but he's delivering both of these exhortations or these urging of people to respond to his message And he's delivering good news of the coming Messiah. Verse 19. But when John rebuked Herod the Tetrarch because of his marriage to Herodias, his brother's wife, and all the other evil things he had done, Herod added this to them all. He locked John up in prison. So John's bold proclamations did not result in only good things. John called out Herod Antipas for his unrighteous behavior. And follow me on this, because Antipas convinced his half-niece Herodias to divorce his brother Philip and marry him instead, after Antipas divorced his wife too. And you thought days of our lives was crazy. John calls this out not just because of the ick factor of this, but because of the illegality of this in the law of God. And for that, Antipas throws John in jail, and he is later executed at the, res- at the request of the Queen Herodias. So John was executed for boldly proclaiming the truth of God against a wicked ruler. Verse 21, when all the people were being baptized, Jesus was baptized too. And as he was praying, heaven was opened. So Luke rearranges some of the timeline here and goes back before John the Baptist was arrested to discuss Jesus' baptism. And Luke does this in order to put all of the focus squarely on Jesus. He's also intertwining the ministries of Jesus and John to show that they are not separate periods of salvation history, but connected as part of the one purpose of God. So we we have to ask this question, why did Jesus get baptized? He had no sin to repent of, right? Ultimately, he's accomplishing a similar thing to those who had gotten baptized by John, namely that they oriented themselves around God's purpose. For those people, however, it was a moment of transition from old life to new life. But for Jesus, it was, it was about his actualization as the son of God rather than a transition. It's also about identifying himself with sinners and what he eventually does at the cross by taking on our sin. And so then it says that heaven was open and it gives us this idea that God is breaking through and he's about to bring this great revelation. And here it is, verse 22. And the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove and a voice came from heaven. You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. You see, this moment at the baptism is astounding. Luke is the only one to really give the picture that the dove was in bodily form. A dove was a symbol of peace or freedom from judgment in the Old Testament, not typically used for the Holy Spirit. So this moment is also reminiscent of creation when the Spirit hovered over the waters, kind of like a bird. And God, through the Word, spoke creation into existence, and we know the Word is Jesus, and spoke as well His pleasure over what He created. So He's speaking His pleasure over His Son, 
And so in this moment, you have all three persons of the Trinity interacting with each other, just like at creation. And now Jesus is this new Adam coming out to be the human that was supposed to be for all of us. So with the Spirit coming like a dove, it signified that Jesus would bring salvation to those who would turn to him. And the voice of God speaking is to authenticate Jesus as the Son of God. Jesus did not earn his place with God, but was born fully God as his Son, his very image and representative. And so what God is basically saying here is that he is pleased to have his entire plan of salvation rest upon Jesus. Verse 23. Now, Jesus himself was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, the son of Heli. From this point on to the end of the chapter, Luke is going to go into Jesus' genealogy. And I'm not going to read the whole thing because, you know, it's hard to read Bible names. Um, but, But because of the fact that the vast majority of these guys, we just have no record of in the Bible. But this genealogy points to really critical things. And I encourage you to actually look at this genealogy and see the points that I'm about to talk about. First, Luke is showing us that Jesus is the son of David. He's from the line of kings, as God promised to David in 2 Samuel 7, that he would have a descendant on the throne forever. So Luke is saying, here's that descendant that's going to rule forever. But secondly, he's also saying that he's the son of God, which is how the genealogy ends in verse 38. But lastly, that Jesus is fully human. He comes from human descent. He represents the entirety of the human race. This is what enables him to be able to go to the cross in the first place. Because he was a human, yet sinless, and could actually die in our place. You see, if Jesus was not actually human and just a spirit floating around like Casper the ghost, he couldn't have died in our place. And so this genealogy proves to us Jesus' humanity and to, as well to show the universal offer of salvation for all mankind. And it, always, and it all goes back to God. But because Jesus is not just any other human, but the Son of God who has come to deliver us from our sin, we must do our third call. We must point to the greatness of Jesus as the Son of God and be willing to suffer for it. You see, John was very clear. He was not worthy to even be a slave of Jesus. And so if John, who Jesus called the greatest born of women, says that, how much more so all of us? You see, our job as Christians is always to point to the greatness of Jesus rather than ourselves. You see, in our culture with social media, likes, comments, shares, interactions, stories, followers, tweets, retweets, etc., that's giving me a panic attack thinking about all that, we are constantly taught to point to ourselves, to gain more, to show how great our lives are or our accomplishments. Instead, as Christians, we are to point to the greatness of Christ because there is no one like him, the Son of God, and we are imperfect, weak, and prone to sin. And yet, he chose to reveal his great love to us by coming to live among us, dying on our behalf, and rose again to justify us and make us new people. Could there be anything else that is greater? No, But the reality is that this goes against our culture and we must be willing to suffer for proclaiming the greatness of Jesus. John was willing to suffer the consequences for boldly stating what God had told him to. 
And I think we tend to be suffering averse in our culture. We would rather be liked and included than risk being rejected and hated for our belief in Jesus. But as the Apostle Paul said, I count everything as lost compared to knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. So are you willing to suffer the cost for proclaiming the greatness of Jesus? Do you tend to point to the greatness of yourself rather than Jesus? Seek this morning to have that mindset changed and commit to making your life about Jesus rather than yourself. So I want us to pause and as we close to take a moment to consider these three calls. To have total allegiance to Jesus, to live out obedience from a changed heart, to proclaim Jesus as the son of God and being willing to suffer for that. I want you to think about which of these steps, do you, what, what steps do you need to take to make these calls a reality in your life this year in 2021? You see, they're right in front of us. God wants it for you and is for you to make it happen and will make it happen in you. This is a work he wants to do for you. So visualize what 2021 could be like if these calls were a normal part of your life. What would be different? What kind of impact could that make on other people? And so if your life is not matched with genuine repentance, a genuine giving of yourself to Jesus, come to him this morning and tell him that you're ready to follow him completely. If your life has been more about yourself than proclaiming Jesus, make it your mission this morning to proclaim him instead of yourself, not just because it is the right thing to do, but it is what we were made to do. And if you've believed in a sort of Christianity that is comfortable, what are some ways you could become uncomfortable as you follow the, God, the call God has placed on your life? Is it by going on a mission trip, talking to your neighbor, your friend, a relative about Jesus, making an uncomfortable decision that maybe would be hard for your life? But most of all, let's remember this. The call of God on our lives is total allegiance, but he will enable us to live boldly and obediently. Let's pray. God, thank you so much that you have enabled us to live for you boldly and obediently. God, I know I look at myself and I look at my life. If it was just up to me and my abilities, God, I would just stay in my house all the time, stay with my family. But God, you have called us to something greater. You have called us to live for you. And so Jesus, we are living in a world right now that is tumultuous. There's tension everywhere. But Jesus, the call that you have placed on our lives has not changed. So help us to be bold, help us to be confident, but help us to remember that it is you working through us, you working in us. So help us to have faith to step out. But God as well, help us to have true allegiance only to you, not to anything else. And we pray this in your name, amen.